and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. We are getting into the real pro cycling season this weekend with the UA Tour. Starts on Sunday, stage one, a sprint stage in the Middle East. Could be, could be pretty exciting. A lot of stuff happens in the Middle East with crosswinds, so you never know if it's going to be an exciting stage or just a regular old sprint. We do have the Volta Algarve, the Volta Andalusia, and a bunch of other races going on currently. Uh, they've also offered some pretty exciting racing so far, and they will probably have some good stuff this weekend, at least when they have the summit finishes. But there's just so much racing going on, um, I, and, I, and I tend to, to just focus on the start of the World Tour season. Um, you can just lose the signal through the noise with all these early season races. I kind of consider a lot of them to be like preseason races. Um, certainly, there are things we can glean from them, but we don't want to over focus on them and kind of lose the the narrative thread to the season and like lose the important signifiers and trends that will tell us what is going to happen at the actually important races. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition. Comes out minimum once a week. If you like the podcast, definitely sign up for that. It's a no-brainer. There's also a paid edition. Comes out daily during Grand Tours. Covers every major race. Offers discounts to major brands like Stages Cycling, Curave Switzerland, Fast Cat Coaching. If you like discounts, if you like racing, if you like cycling, if you like breakdowns of every race, sign up for that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, back to the cycling. Volta Algarve today, if you watch this stage, Fabio Jakobsen is the best sprinter in the world. I'm convinced of it. The guy is amazing. Um, just like a hulking, strong, fast sprinter. I know Caleb Ewan also won today at Tour des Alpes, but Jakobsen got dropped off way too far out by his lead out man, Casper Askren, who does not look super fit, by the way. And we have the classics breathing down our neck soon so that's something to keep an eye on but he just it was like a slightly uphill slow motion sprint and he just powered powered all the way to the line won the stage in front of tin merlier who was kind of the breakout star of the, the at least in the sprint scene of the 2021 season but he looked thoroughly outclassed by jacobson that kind of gives us a, a sign of just how good jacobson is at the moment um, this is relevant in a larger sense because it means Cavendish has even more of an uphill battle to make the Tour de France start list. It's, it actually seems kind of tough right now. And if, we, and, if, and if we really look back at the Tour of Oman where Cavendish was, was, pretty, was pretty dang good last week, um, he had a terrible lead out. I mean, they sent him there with basically just like a can of beans as a lead out. He, he performed pretty well despite that. I mean, he did only win one stage and he was kind of in bad position the entire race because he didn't have teammates strong enough or well-drilled enough to, to put him in the right position. Jakobsen has definitely had the team's A-grade lead out um, at every race he's been at so far, which tells us just where the team's priorities lie. He's also raced eight times this year and won four times. It's going to be hard for Cavendish at this point to prove that he offers the team a better chance of winning Tour de France stages than Fabio Jakobsen. So um, at this point, uh, Jakobsen's going to the Tour, uh, no doubt in my mind, unless something happens physically to him leading into the Tour de France. I know it's early, but um, the guy looks incredible right now. Um, other things about Agave, David Goodall is leading the GC because he won on the mountaintop summit finish, or I guess uphill mini mini mountain summit finish yesterday's stage stage two um there was a crazy moment where sergio higita kind of like flew around tried to come around to pi to tobias foss on yumbo the norwegian road race champion 
and they just kind of slammed into each other. It was it was really like bush league. It's like watching like a cat five sprint where he came around him in the corner on an uphill finish, and of course Voss is going to drift into him. That's kind of how momentum works. They both get tangled up and go down. Um, it allowed Gadow to kind of like burst free for a three second gap and to win the stage. So he's winning the G- overall. G- he's leading the overall GC right now, but. It is difficult to imagine Remco Evenepoel with that TT tomorrow not winning the overall and that summit finish on the final day that really suits his, um, his climbing style. So I think Remco's got this locked up. He won the race in 2020, so this would be his second overall win at the race. It doesn't really tell us a lot other than Remco Evenepoel's a good time trialist and pretty good short stage racer and climber, which we already knew. Vuelta Andalusia over the border in southern Spain. I'm sure no one's watching. Who's who the heck is watching these races? These things are obscure races. But Magnus Sheffield, the 19-year-old American on Ineos, won stage stage three today with a really impressive solo solo win. Um, the stage could not have looked harder. It was like all out racing the final 40k compared to Algarve, which looked like uh, like a bunch ride or like a coffee ride. The parkours were a little bit different, but also there's no time trial at Andalusia. And what happens in these short stage races with no time trial is it means all the time has to be gained on the road. So you get really, really hard stages. Um, it actually makes it a lot more exciting. And this is like an exhibit A of why that is. Um, the racing was just so tough. Um, we saw Leonard Kamna trying to bridge up to the breakaway with like 35k to go. Um, it kind of spurred this little small elite group of, of contenders getting away with Mihal Angel Lopez, who looks really good, by the way. Um, I see him winning Andalusia. He won it last year. Once again, I'm not quite sure how much this tells us about Lopez, other than he's quite good. We already knew he was quite good, but we want to know, can he convert being quite good and winning small early season one-week stage races or sub one-week stage races into competing for Grand Tour titles? Um, I'm not convinced that's going to happen. But back to the stage. Um, stuff got crazy coming into the finish. Um, I may or may not break this down. Um, it, w- it was I normally wouldn't break down like a random stage of a small early season stage race, but it was pretty interesting racing. Um, Ineos was really, really, really present at the front. But interesting, they, they had two riders. I think it was uh, Jonathan Navarra's and Carlos Rodriguez, who is a very good rider, by the way, kind of breakout rider for them. So far this year, crashed with like a K to go, and it made created this gap for Sheffield. He kind of uh, accelerated off the front, got an initial gap, and just held it and won, won the stage solo. It was kind of a like a slight uphill finish, but he was he was incredibly active and strong. Um, anytime that it was the peloton was breaking up, there was basically just like small groups chasing each other heading into the finish. And Sheffield was, I thought he was the strongest guy. In those groups, he he was really impressive, and to be 19 years old and be winning—not it's not a world tour race, but it's it's quite a race, quite stacked with talent. It's a pretty big race. Um, that's that's something. <laughs> that is like this is not um, just like a young rider with empty hype. I, I was so impressed by this stage win. It's his first professional win. I wasn't even quite sure what type of rider he was coming into the season. He was on rally last year. Um, pretty good time trial is top 10 at the U23 um, time trial championships. Clearly has a lot of power. I mean, that was clear watching the race. So curious to keep an eye on him and see if he can turn into a consistent winner. Something that's really tough for these, um, especially young non-British riders on Ineos is just finding any type of opportunity. Um, you could easily see him just getting slotted in as, as like sitting on the front for GC contenders 
setting pace at Grand Tours. Um, we'd, we'd hate to see that happen. So I hope he can keep this rolling and get some type of um, freedom at that team. It's also difficult to imagine there is an uphill finish on the final stage on stage five. Um, stage four, tomorrow's stage, is also in the mountains. It's difficult to see anyone but Mijal Ango Lopez win this, but I, I'm curious to see. It's, it's definitely not locked up. I'm, I'm curious to see if Ineos could make something happen in the GC. They've been really active at the front. Alessandro Covey from UAE is currently winning um, the race overall. He had a really impressive ride. I believe that was stage two to win on. It was a steep, steep uphill finish into kind of one of these classic European um, fortress hilltop towns. You know, he, he looks so strong in that. It's not a given that he'll just fall away on these summit finishes, but with just that many climbs and Lopez being such a good climber, it's hard not to imagine him being able to close eight seconds, especially with time bonuses and win the overall here. Ineos has definitely been the dominant team. Their top rider is Carlos Rodriguez in 10th place at 10 seconds back. It will be interesting to see what they can do there, but he's, he's with a lot of really good riders like Jack Haig. Um, even Domenico Pozovivo. I mean, yeah, I, I'm curious to see what Rodriguez can do. I mean, I would be incredibly impressed if he could win this race. But something to, to wonder, to ponder, is if Remco wins Algarve, Lopez wins Andalusia, what does this mean? Like, what does this actually mean? Both riders have already won these races before. Um, it, it would not be shocking if they both won. Do, do these races matter? Like, does the early season really tell us anything about the late season or the real season, the mid season, even the spring season. I touched on this in a post earlier this week, but this racing has been dominated so far, in my opinion, by the race for the relegation and promotion UCI points race. Basically the teams that suck, like Cofidius, Arkea, Intermarche, have been outperforming pretty much every team besides like Quickstep and UAE. But they're just coming out hot. They're, they're making a bet that they can get so fit so early that they can steal points, quote unquote, steal points early. And that when, you know, when they have to pay for this fitness later at bigger races, they wouldn't be scoring points anyway. So they can afford to underperform there because it's just priced in. They would have been underperforming anyway. So um, the way they see it, it's all upside. And, and they have been doing quite well. Um, I'll be curious to see if this actually shakes out at the end of the year. I know Arkea is like not going to the Giro. They've declined their invitation. They probably just don't have the resources to send a team there and send the support staff there. So that that's obviously really good, really going to hurt them with uh, UCI points. I mean, you, you there's so many points on offer to Grand Tour because it's basically 21 one-day World Tour races is essentially how it's weighted. So that's going to be really tough to make up. But outside of this relegation battle, like what does this racing actually tell us? I, I've been thinking Richard Carapaz has looked so bad. Um, I've actually been quite shocked with how bad he's looked. Considering he's Ineos's only top tier GC contender left on the roster after Egan Bernal's crash. I know Garrett Thomas is a Tour de France winner. Um, I know Richie Porte podiumed at the 2020 Tour de France, but um, with their ages and what we've seen from them, especially last year, I don't consider either of them to be, you're just fooling yourself if you think they can be a contender at the Tour de France. That's just not going to happen. Um, it's, it, it would be irresponsible for the team to think that that's a possibility. So considering this, I just assumed that Carapaz would get moved to the Tour de France because it's the only, he's the, the only rider on the team that could feasibly go up against Pogacar and Roglic and win. He got third behind Jonas Vindegaard and 
Tadej Pogacar at that 2021 Tour de France. Um, I didn't think he was supported that well. I thought the team could have done quite a bit better to, better to at least get him into second place. Um, he's, he's probably not going to beat Tadej Pogacar straight up as long as there's time trials in an event, which is going to happen at least this year. So, But you never know. With uh, Roglic crashes all the time, Pogacar is going to run into bad luck at some point. Even Lance Armstrong, who had I mean, one of the longest runs of... Uh, it's actually mind-boggling to go back and look at that seven-year run and imagine that he never really had a flat or a crash at a bad time. Um, obviously, he crashed at the 2003 tour on like one of the final climbs of the race, but that ended up helping him. But you know, even Lance, who was so skilled and, and in, in so many ways so lucky to to not really have um, any terrible falls, you know, it could have gone another way. If you remember the 2003 tour, that descent going into Gap. Where Jose Balaki crashes in front of him, he kind of just goes, it was like lucky there was no ditch and just kind of went into a field and rode across the field and then jumped back onto the road. Uh, he should have gone down there. So, you know, you, you just think something will eventually happen. Um, and even with this, as long as this COVID testing situation is still going, it's a little crazy to me that they are, after most professional sports have just stopped testing asymptomatic people that the tour is planning to test everyone, I think on every rest day, you're going to have riders caught up with positive tests. Like people, if they go ahead with that, people will get sent home. Um, so the calculation be making is, does Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic get a positive test? You know, it's, it's not likely, but it could happen. So there's definitely something to be said for just sending a pretty good rider who maybe can't win straight up. And just trying to keep him as high as possible. And then maybe the people in front of him get pulled out of the race. Um, I don't totally hate that strategy. I think Carapaz has been so bad so far that he, I, I don't see him being able to compete at the Giro. I said last week that they probably wouldn't send him to the Giro. I got a lot of pushback from that. Um, some feedback, people sending me clips of articles saying that Carapaz will ride the Giro. I'm aware that Carapaz is saying he will ride the Giro. I'm just not convinced the team will actually send them there. Um, these riders in these teams say a bunch of stuff. What actually happens in real life is, is oftentimes completely different and completely separate from that. And I said in my Monday post that he's so bad and so out of shape right now that he probably can't get fit enough to win the 2022 Giro. I got a lot of pushback for that as well, saying that he's always out of shape at the beginning of the year. I hate to point out that he doesn't really win Grand Tours. He's won one in 2019. So citing Richard Carapaz's past out of shapeness as like a positive is not maybe the positive that you think it is because he's often not winning Grand Tours. He's only won one. And if he came into the season sharper and maybe raced less and, and trained more, he might be sharper and let's say maybe could have won the 2020 Vuelta España when he lost just by a little bit to Primus Roglic. Having said that, the the field at the Giro will be the weakest field of the year by, by quite a bit. Um, if, if you look at the start list, the provisional start list so far, you have Simon Yates on Bike Exchange. He's pretty good. He got third last year at the Giro. He won the Vuelta in 2018. Not what I'd call an unbeatable contender, though. You have Mika Landa, who, yeah, I would guess Richard Carabaz is going to beat him because he can never put it together at a Grand Tour. I don't even think he's ever finished on a podium. I, he hasn't finished on a podium since the 2015 edition of the Zero. I mean, that's a long time. That's seven years ago. So I wouldn't 
Yeah, I wouldn't look at him if I was Richard Carapaz and think I'm in trouble. Really, the only riders that I think would be too difficult to overcome at this point is an in-shape Tom, Tom Dumoulin, who we don't really know much about. But remember, he won the 2017 Giro and for a while, in my opinion, was the second best Grand Tour rider in the world. He got second at the 2018 Giro, got second at the 2018 Tour, and then got fourth at the World Championships that year. That's like one of the most impressive run of results without winning that I can remember. You have Miguel Angel Lopez, who is not a good Grand Tour rider. Um, I hate to break it to people. He's another guy who has like a lot of fans online who are convinced he's still like a top-tier rider, even though he does not deliver results. He's a fan- fantastic climber, fantastic high-altitude climber specifically, but he's has not finished on a Grand Tour podium since 2018. And in his last four Grand Tours, he's finished one of them. That's really bad. That is really bad. Um, and just as long as there's time trials there, I think he's, he's one of the worst time trialists in the Peloton, it's, and especially amongst Grand Tour contenders. So I just don't see how, uh, not that he can't win. Obviously, a race is mountain-oriented and as chaotic as the Giro, he, he maybe could win. But you know, if you're Carapaz, even if you're out of shape right now, you're not looking at him thinking, I can't beat him. Um, I'd say that people might roll their eyes at this, but Joao Almeida, if he comes fit, it's just really difficult to imagine Carapaz beating a fit Almeida. Um, I know he's never won a Grand Tour, but he's never finished outside the top 10. He's only done two, but he's never really had undisputed team leadership. Even that 2020 Giro where he kind of came out of nowhere and had the leader's jersey, Fausto Maznan on his team was kind of riding for himself, not really supporting him. And then last year, if you take out his stage four flop, which was terrible and does count, obviously, um, he was one of the best riders in the race. I mean, he was like matching Bernal time for time, basically, after that, even though he had to sit up and wait for his teammate Remco Evenepoel quite a bit. So if Almeida comes with leadership at UAE and is fit, it's just hard. You know, there's not a ton of time traveling, but there's still close to 30K of it. I mean, that's going to matter. <laughs> like, he could gain minutes on Carapaz and 30 kilometers of time trialing. So and he's, a, he's a really good climber, completely underrated climber. But the, the big takeaway should be that there's no one here that's a really, at this point at least, a, a top tier Grand Tour contender. So perhaps there is still hope left for Carapaz, even with his current lack of form. And let's get into that really quick. And if that actually matters, um, he's been really bad this season, like to the point to the point where I'm wondering if like something's wrong. I mean, he did test positive for COVID at the Tour de la Provence and had to leave the race. The team has said he's asymptomatic, but um, he got dropped on the stage before that with like a kilometer left after his team, including him, rode in the crosswinds all day and like ripped the race to shreds and would have put him in a perfect position to win overall had he been able to not get dropped. Um, some people were commenting back at me saying that, oh, he was just like holding the race together, pulling people back for Viviani and that's why he got dropped. But in my opinion, if you're a grand tour contender, you should be able to do that and not get dropped going into the final kilometer of a sprint finish, but that's just me. But he's, he's been, been very not good specifically on uphill finishes. Um, a lot of the times as people point out, he's not very good early in the season, like at, at uh, putting together entire stage races and winning them. But if we go back to 2019, I think that is the best he's ever started a season. And specifically, he got two top 10s at Vuelta San Juan in Argentina. He got a top 10 at Vuelta Colombia, which is a really tough race in Colombia, obviously. 
but he was really good on the uphill finishes, like really competitive, not winning them, but he was there showing signs of life. And then he goes to that year's Giro and wins. Um, I don't think that's insignificant. I think that's a pretty good trend that's showing us that, you know, even though we're, we're 80 we're I guess a little less than 80 days before the start of the Giro, that sounds like a lot of time. You know, people might say, oh, that's three months away. That's completely unrelated now. But when we're talking about fitness levels at, at this high and at this level of competition, that, that is not very much time. You know, that's, you cannot build fitness from scratch in 80 days to go put together a three-week performance and win a grand tour. Simply not possible. So that's the big uphill battle for Carapaz. He's clearly out of shape. And even if this is part of his trend of just like showing up, not being like a world-class trainer and just kind of showing up and racing himself into shape, unfortunately for him, that's not been terribly successful, at least in grand tours. He's a great stage winner um, and difficult one-day racer, as we saw by him winning the Olympics. But if we remember, that was right after the tour where he had just raced for three weeks. So he was at peak fitness. I often think he could like be a Liège contender, but you know, even this year we saw he's just not far enough along to be a contender at Liège. I know people will roll their eyes at that, but that's just the reality that you can't put fitness together that quickly. Carapaz is kind of more of an old school where you old school type rider where you show up and race yourself into shape. If we look at the modern trend, you know, there's really no Grand Tour winners, modern Grand Tour winners who have even raced yet. Everyone just sits and trains and stays at their high altitude training camp in the Canary Islands, minimizes variables, gets super, super fit. You know, it's hard to race. You wear your body down because it's it's less controllable. There's a lot of surges, a lot of crashes. There's a lot of traveling in between stages, traveling to and from races. All that takes away, if you want to be super anal about it, takes away from time you could be either resting or training. You know, that's, it's like this big math equation where how much time can you spend training and resting? And like, can we maximize that training by rest? Anytime you leave the house, anytime you travel, you're taking away, you're pulling away from both of the sides of the equation, which will leave you less fit when you get to your big objectives. And, and that's what a lot of these big contenders have, have kind of figured out this is all just a really boring equation about minimizing everything in your life to the point that you can just train and rest. Carapaz, it's refreshing. He, he does not do that. You know, he, he wants to be at races. He's like a killer, which is why he's a good racer, you know, which is why he won that 2019 Giro and why he's kind of always lurking as a potential winner, even though he's not a perennial winner. But if we just look at how much the sport has changed, even since 2019, Primoz Roglic won the Vuelta in 2019, 2020, and 2021. Um, it, was, it was pretty strong, I'd say, at the Tour, at least 2020 and 2021. Potentially could have won the 2021 Tour if he had been able to stay upright. But he always waits until late February, early March to start his season. In 2019, he starts it at the UA Tour, just comes out and wins it. Super fit. 2020, Tour de Lon in August. Um, the whole season got shifted, but that was the start of the restart of the season. He wins it. 2021 comes out to Perry Nice as his first race, which is pretty late for a first race. Um, was amazing, did crash, um, finished 15th. Would have won if he wouldn't have crashed, though. So, moral of the story starts his season late, comes in absolutely flying just because he's been focusing on his training. We look at Tade Pogacar. He wins the tour in 2020, 2021 as well. He sits and waits to start his season late because he's training so much, minimizing those variables, as I talk about. 2020, goes to Valenciana in early February, wins it, goes to UAE in late February, finishes second, was never really out of shape the entire season. That's also a trend with Roglic. You're never out of shape. Next year, goes to the UAE Tour, wins it, never out of shape, wins the Tour. 
Egan Bernal, a little bit different, a little bit more of a traditional racer than them, but still, in 2021, last year when he won the Giro, he started a season at Tour de Garde. Wasn't great, but he was at least showing signs of life, and then he goes to the Tour of Provence in mid-February and gets third overall. You know, and, and Pogacar and Roglic are, are outliers. Like, it's, it's insane that they're that fit all the time. You know, you can't expect everyone to be doing that. But we see with Bernal where even a more traditional rider like him is showing signs of life. And then that's what you want to see. And that's what I want to see is like a sign that you're fit, but maybe not super sharp, where you're able to compete on summit finishes. Maybe you're not winning them, but you're there, you're present. And that's what Carapaz has not been showing so far this year. He's just been completely absent anytime the race goes uphill. You know, maybe this is a, this could be a strategy where, you know, I'm just going to come in and hammer myself on the flats. And if, you know, I'll just kind of get to the top, but I don't, I don't buy that that can work in modern racing, at least not at a scalable level. You know, we saw Chris Froome in 2018, he won the Giro after being, you know, pretty poor early in the year, but I say poor, but he wasn't bad. You know, he was there at the summit finishes, like at Vuelta Andalusia or Ruta del Sol, whatever you want to call it, Tour Valps. He was getting, you know, beaten, but he wasn't really getting dropped. Um, Tom Doom, and he had to remember he had to come back from behind in that Giro to win. That's not replicable either. That was an incredible comeback that you would not, you know, map it out that way. 2017, Tom Dumoulin come in, comes in, was not, you know, absolutely crushing it, but he was pretty fit, had decent results at Abu Dhabi Tour, Strada Bianchi, and Torino Adriatico, goes on to win the Giro pretty dominantly, by the way. In 2016, Vincenzo Nibali, Giro winner, starts the season in January, and he wins Tour of Oman in early February. We're seeing a trend here, where a lot of these if you want to win the Giro, which is the first Grand Tour of the season in May, you got to be pretty good in January and February. Um, there's a, there could be a few exceptions here, but it's it's the trend is clear. It might sound like a long time before a race to have to be fit, but the data backs up that you have to have some level of fitness. You have to be showing signs of life. And even since those examples in 2016, 17, and 18, the level's much higher at these Grand Tours than it was back then. You even have to be more anal about your training. You have to be fitter earlier in the season. Um, you probably want to race less and focus on training and just, you know, replicating the the kind of long watt per kilo focused performances that you need to win a Grand Tour. But not to sound like I'm hedging, the Giro will have a very weak field, at least relative to the Tour de France and the Volta Spagna. So perhaps I was being too harsh by saying that he doesn't stand a chance at all. But at this point, I really don't like his odds. I just think it's going to be hard for him to overcome this fitness hole that he's in. And one more thing I want to talk about before we leave is just how odd it is that Ineos is in this position where, you know, they probably potentially have to send an undercooked Carapaz to the zero anyway, hope for the best, hope for some of that Carapaz magic, you know, let him get into fitness, let him ride into the race into the third week, which is also kind of an old school antiquated way to think about Grand Tours, in my opinion, because it's not like time gained in the first two weeks is worth less than time gained in the third week. They really might not have, if they want to win a Grand Tour in t- this season, 2022, they might not have a better option than that because if they rest Carapaz, if they have him train through the Giro, send another contender, let's say they send Richie Port and Teo Gegenhart, they probably don't win with those two riders. Carapaz goes to the Tour, he probably doesn't win against Pogacar and Roglic. And then let's say even Carapaz goes back to the Volta with Adam Yates, it's probably the exact same outcome that happened this last year where, 
you know, they're competitive, they're up there, but ultimately Roglic wins. So they're not in a great position. And it, it's shocking that a team with a $60 million a year budget, like the most quote unquote data driven team in the sport could let this happen. You know, it's, it's almost mind boggling where, you know, you figure, okay, well, this, well, this is, this is only happening because you know, two Slovenians are better than everyone else. But if, even if you take Pogacar and Roglic out of the equation, which in my opinion, I don't understand why, you know, they had the same information as everyone else. They should have been recruiting Roglic and Pogacar anyway. It doesn't take a genius to know that if you can hold seven watts per kilo for 25 minutes and you're an incredibly skilled racer at 16 years old, that you might be a rider a team might want to sign. <laughs> that does not take a rocket scientist to figure that out. But even if you take those two out of the equation, you know, they've whiffed on a lot of these young talents. You think of Alexander Vlasov. You know, he's up and down. He's inconsistent, but he's a pretty good GC contender, and he would be a pretty good fit at Ineos. He's actually the, the perfect type of, type of rider for them. Joao Almeida, perfect type of rider for Ineos. How did they miss on him? Jack Haig, Gino Mater, both those guys on Bahrain are, are incredible young talents that Ineos just completely whiffed on. How, how this happened, to, to kind of let you behind the curtain here, is while they call themselves like a data-driven team, smartest team in cycling, et cetera, et cetera, um, they don't really have a robust rider recruitment or development team. They actually don't even really develop riders if you go through it. Not many riders get better once they go to Ineos, outside of a few, few you know, obvious examples like Chris Froome. But they just rely on this one Italian agent who represents a lot of South, South American riders like Egan Bernal, Ivan Sosa, Richard Carapaz, and then he signs them to long-term contracts with small teams. Ineos buys those contracts out, gives a small team a chunk of cash to send that rider their way. And that's how they've recruited through maybe like the past half decade. Well, that means they've missed out on these non-South American talents. If, and if you look at Ineos, you know, it's a British team, but a lot of their young talents are Spanish-speaking. And that's because this agent specializes in uh, young Spanish-speaking talents. But what's that? what that has left them vulnerable to is just completely whiffing on young, up-and-coming, non-Spanish-speaking talents. And even when they get a really talented rider, like Danny Martinez is incredible. I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't even write him off for the Giro d'Italia. If the team sends him to the Giro, Danny Martinez is talented enough to just kind of like make it happen and win the Giro. This guy is a huge talent. One of the most underrated uh, riders in professional cycling, in my opinion. And even John, like Jonathan Navarez, Carlos Rodriguez. These guys are all big talents, big young talents, but there's just not many options there because they still have to service the egos of Richie Port, Garrett Thomas, um, Teo Gegenhardt. He's a, he's a Giro winner. He deserves some type of leadership at some point, you would imagine. Adam Yates, even though he's never podiumed in a Grand Tour, he's British, he can command a lot of publicity, the team will have to service that. So there's just not much left for talented young non-Anglophone riders. Um, it puts, this, puts them in this like weird cycle where even if, you know, let's say this is true, there was a rumor they offered Tadej Pogacar 18 million euros a year to come race for them. Even someone as good as Pogacar, you could imagine him not having like a carte blanche leadership at the Tour de France, like he's going to have at UAE. You know, they get really cute about, well, we'll see who our leader is in, in June. You know, they never really announce a leader sometimes, like last year, they don't even really announce one as the race is happening and everyone's just kind of out there doing their own thing. That's not going to be attractive to Pogacar. 
you know, Primoz Roglic, that was an example someone put forward. If he's looking at Yumbo, where he's the man, even though there's a lot of good riders, and Ineos, he's not going to be a guaranteed leader at Ineos. So it's just this bizarre situation where they lack the top, top talent, but they have so much like tier two and tier three talent that it makes it unattractive to young up and coming riders, because why would you go there and get sat on the bench? Like I just talked about with Magnus Sheffield earlier in the episode. So I hope some of that gives us a context as to which into how to watch these early season races. Um, UAE is going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm excited just looking at the start list. Um, you have like Joao Almeida, Adam Yates, Tade Bogacar, Tom Dumoulin. I'm really excited to see how Tom Dumoulin does. We're going to get Mark Cavendish and Elia Viviani head to head in the sprints. I'm just going to be a really exciting race. Some of the, there's definitely been um, COVID issues. I talked to a team, uh, like a team management person, personnel earlier this week, and they <laughs> said it was basically just chaos behind the scenes because. They have these bubbles of riders at races, and as soon as there's a positive COVID test in one bubble, it basically voids everyone in that bubble. So you have all these overlapping races that, like EF has four riders racing at UA Tour, which is a World Tour race. That's crazy to only send four riders to a World Tour race, but I bet everyone got any rider that they would have sent, any rider available has been exposed to COVID. So that's what they can send. You know, Gazprom has two riders. That's insane. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. Um, Intermarche only has four riders. Unfortunately, that will color a lot of, uh, hopefully just this early part of the season. I, I hope they can get this figured out later in the season and maybe come up with a little bit different testing plan or else we might have teams sending four riders to the Tour de France. We'll see. But I'll be back next week talking about the UA Tour and breaking down the important points of some of these races that will wrap up this weekend. All right, have a great weekend. Enjoy the cycling, and I'll see you next week.